want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Proverbs. I'm going to read the text to you this morning. You can read along silently as I read. And then I want to unfold this small section of scripture for you, really for the purpose of your sanctification as well as the unity of our church. The Proverbs are powerful. If you've heard the term truism before applied to the Proverbs, that's really a proper way of thinking about them. In other words, when you look at the Proverbs, you're not looking for the most crisp, didactic, doctrinal teaching. What you're looking at is generalities. You're looking at the reality that the Proverbs speak of axiomatic or real-life truth that's obviously true. And if you adhere yourself to the principles of those truths, those generalisms, those general truths, then life will go well, generally speaking. And if you don't, it will not go well, generally speaking. And so keep that in mind as we go through this proverb. Many times people will read the Proverbs, they will see this axiomatic truth that's written out. And I'm going to give you a real general statement about how the Proverbs go. Uh, you can think of the Proverbs this way. If I honor the Lord, my life will go well. If I don't honor the Lord, my life will go poorly. And then some will read things like that, those general truths that are displayed specifically throughout the book of Proverbs, and they will say, yeah, but I know somebody who dishonors the Lord, and his life seems to really be going well. Remember that the Proverbs are truisms. And there will be exceptions temporarily. You might even be reading through the Proverbs and say, you know, I've adhered to these principles, and my life is not going well. They are truisms. They're generally focused upon general reality. But in the end, they will prove to have been specifically and certainly and concretely true across the board. There will be no exceptions. So as we go through this passage this morning, it's important, I think, that you keep that in mind. Lest you find an exception to the rule in your life or someone else's life and you throw away the whole message. Be encouraged. That if you will be faithful to God's principles, He will bless you. On the other hand, if you will not be faithful, faithful to the principles He has laid out for you and for me, then you will experience His discipline. The passage goes this way, Proverbs 28, 12-14. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. This morning we'll see that concealing sin leads to catastrophe. While confessing and forsaking it leads to mercy and triumph. So that we will be a people who fear God and experience His blessing. That's really the outcome of an honest and faithful embracing of the truths of this passage. The one who will cling to his sin and harden his heart will experience God's calamity. Uh, I should say the delivery of calamity from God himself. On the other hand, the person who will deal rightly and honestly with his sin, he'll confess it. He'll be honest about it. He'll tell it. But he'll also forsake it. That person will experience God's mercy. And if you're in Christ, you've experienced that truth. You know that reality to be true because God has in fact blessed you in your repentance of your sin. We'll start with verse 12, of course. Verse 12 says, When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. I believe this to be generally speaking of governmental or national leadership. When the wicked rise to leadership in a nation, people begin to hide. You see that throughout history. They might initially think, oh, this is our Savior. This is the one who's going to take our nation to a place of freedom and greatness. But then in due time, as that leader proves himself to not only be unwise, foolish, but also tyrannical, controlling, like a dictator. Eventually the people want nothing to do with him. They begin to hide themselves from him. Proverbs 28.15 says, Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over 
poor people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. In Proverbs 28, 17 and 18, If one is burdened with the blood of another, he will be a, a fugitive unto death. Let no one help him. Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. And so there's a certain outcome for the leader who oppresses people. It's certain, but it's future in most cases. Whatever success he seems to be experiencing is temporary. And we've seen this on an international level a handful of times over the last 10, 15 years in dramatic manner because of the internet. We've seen a a dictator who ruled with an iron fist and, and a cold-blooded, murderous mindset toward his own people as well as others, hanged publicly. We've seen pictures of rulers in the Middle East having been executed, uh, whether legally or illegally. They got what was coming to them. And that's the ultimate reality for a ruler who is oppressive in this way. But I believe this proverb to be applicable in a spiritual context as well. And I think maybe more specifically, maybe more helpfully than in any other passage in all the scripture. In 1 Peter 5, the Lord calls the spiritual leader to have a particular mindset. And the end result, or the certain result, is that people will follow him. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's a call to be a lowly individual whose life is given up for the sake of others. He's not called to be a, a spiritual rock star to draw attention to himself. He goes on to say, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, it, it ought not to be done for the sake of sordid gain, for dishonest gain, for personal gain, but it ought to be done also not with compulsion, but eagerly, voluntarily, one translation says. There ought to be a passionate internal willingness to serve others. That's what a leader is called to. That's why we call it servant leadership. We're told in Mark 10 uh, about Jesus that even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. The King of all time, the Creator of the universe, came to serve. But He came with a heart attitude of service, not looking for something in return. Too often it can be the intent or the purpose of someone who's involved in service to do so for some particular gain as a result of that service. Peter says, you are to do it willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see that? To be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, here we go, this is where Peter gets really specific about those who ought to listen and watch and follow those who are exemplifying what true shepherding leadership is. He then turns to those who would be influenced by those in upper leadership. And he says this, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So there's a responsibility to those who are in that position of eldership. This is not some secular corporate design that the church has borrowed from the world. This comes from the scripture. The biblical leadership would be exemplified in servanthood that other men would see it, follow, and do likewise. Clothe yourselves. He's saying this to the younger men who would be subject to their elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think perhaps the most important passage in all the scripture with regard to growing in Christianity. Recognizing the reality that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. I really believe that with 
uh, an economy of words that only the Lord could establish. In this passage, you also see it in James 4, verse 7, the exact same terminology, that the one who is humble is the one that God looks to. You remember that from Isaiah 66, verse 2. God looks to the humble. And what does He do? With the humble, for the humble, to the humble, He pours out His grace in a flood-type manner. On the other hand, He sets Himself against the proud. You see this in Psalm 5, verse 5. The Hebrew term is sane, and it means hatred. God hates the one who commits iniquity. Those are God's words. Those are not my words. God hates the one who commits iniquity. That Hebrew term sane means to set oneself against. It means that God is opposed to the one who is full of himself. He's full of iniquity. He's full of self-service. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is what is intended to be exemplified in leadership, that others who would follow becoming leaders themselves would be humble, not lording it over others. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, starting with verse 6, Paul says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. The, the New American Standard says, Discipline yourself for godliness. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. And then this in verse 16 this is kind of the capstone of that whole passage. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, on your doctrine, your life and your doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Those who will hear you will see that you genuinely believe what you teach. This is the call of the life of a leader. He is called to be a person who does what he instructs others to do. And the result will be that people will be saved. But if you recall, this is that passage, and I read it to you, where Paul pleads with Timothy to not let people look down on him for the sake of his youth. And he doesn't do that by saying, you know, be defensive. Be arrogant. Be prideful. And when someone looks down on you because of your youth, stick your finger in their face and tell them, you shouldn't do that to me. The context is a mindset of humility. It's a willingness to serve others in such a way, even in one's youth, that people would not look down on the individual who is young. But in his youth, he proves to be wise beyond his years because of his humility. Back to chapter 1, 1 Timothy, verse 6, Paul says certain persons, by swerving from these, again, the truths of the Scripture, have wandered away into vain discussion. You see a lot of that in pseudo-theological circles. There's a lot of talk about theology and not much talk about Scripture. Not much honest dealing with Scripture. People got their theology nailed down. They learned it in some context. But when you address that theology from a true, honest, exegetical perspective of Spirit-filled study in the Scripture, look out. Because now you've attacked the theology that by some tradition or some relationship has become so important to them. Paul says to Timothy, do not let that happen. Because there are certain people who are devoted to that. They swerve from the truth. You like that term? That's how Paul says it. They swerve from the truth. You've swerved before to avoid a squirrel in the road or 
even walking down the hallway, a family member pops out of a room, and there you are in each other's faces. You, one of you swerves. You sometimes swerve the same way, run into each other. You know, this is the idea. They've swerved from the truth. They might have been moving toward the truth, but they swerved away from it. They diverted from it. And here's why, verse 7, they, here's why they've gone into vain discussion. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They're bold enough to tell you what they think. But they've spent little or maybe even no time at all really grappling with the truths of the Scripture under the dominion of the Holy Spirit. It's very, very common, not just in our day, but I think in every age. And so the person who would ultimately suffer himself, but also cause others to suffer in his devotion to the false theology that many times results from laziness, should be exposed. And how is that person exposed? Go with me to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. And you know that this is where Timothy has very clearly and carefully laid out the qualifications for a spiritual leader. Here we go. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If any, anyone aspires to the office of overseer, leader of others, the one who gives oversight of people's lives. You, you, you've heard people talk about the call to ministry, right? Where's that passage? <laughs> I believe there is a call. But how does one know? How does one really know? It starts with a desire to give oversight to people's lives. It does not start with a call to dominate or control people's lives. That oversight is one of service. It's a willingness, as you remember from Hebrews, it is a willingness to undergird others, to be responsible for their souls, to bear the burden of people, even when they sin, even when they go astray. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. What does that mean? It means there's nothing in his life about which anyone could legitimately point a finger. There's no pattern of sin in his life that's exposed. And someone says, well, you know, there, there was that in my life, but I stopped that yesterday, so now I'm above reproach. No, no, no. This is a matter of time. It's a matter of receiving the approval of godly men who have proven to be above reproach. This is why when we planted a church, we said from the beginning, we would by no means do it on our own. <laughs> we wouldn't just go plant a church. You know, hey, let's, have a, let's get a church. You know, you can do that with a club. You want to start a club, start a club. But you don't just go start a church on your own. Men who would start a church, plant a church, need to be approved by men who have proven to be approved. So we subjected ourselves to the godly, long-term, rich heritage at Grace Community Church and their elders who have proven to be above reproach. This is the point. And then Paul unfolds it in great detail. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. The King James says apt to teach, which is actually more accurate. He's not just able, but he actually does it. <laughs> he's not just able, he's able to teach, right? Well, how do we know? Because he teaches effectively. That's how we know he's able to teach, he's apt to teach, he's inclined to teach. Verse 3, he's not a drunkard, he's not violent but gentle, he's not quarrelsome, he's not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up and with conceit and fall puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Even unbelievers must have respect for him. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Richard Baxter, in his tremendous classic called The Reformed Pastor, says these words that I think to be helpful in this context. It's a fearful thing to be an unsanctified professor. He's not talking about a college professor. He's talking about one who 
professes the name of Jesus Christ. It's a fearful thing to be an unsanctified professor, but much more to be an unsanctified preacher. Doth it not make you tremble when you open the Bible, lest you should there read the sentence of your own condemnation? When you pen your sermons, little do you think that you are drawing up indictments against your own souls? When you are arguing against sin that you are aggravating your own? When you proclaim to your hearers the unsearchable riches of Christ and His grace, that you are publishing your own iniquity and rejecting them, and your unhappiness in being destitute of them. What can you do in persuading men to Christ and drawing them from the world and urging them to a life of faith and holiness? But conscience, if it were awake, would tell you that you speak all this to your own confusion. If you speak of hell, you speak of your own inheritance. If you describe the joys of heaven, you describe your own misery, seeing you have no right to the inheritance of saints in light. What can you say for the most part, but it will be against your own souls? Too many men go into the ministry uncalled. At the very least, unqualified. There are those who are called and not yet qualified. And this is why it takes time to determine whether or not a man is not just called, but whether he's qualified. Is he trained in ministry? Is he prepared? Has he proven himself to be a servant? One who would take joy in the responsibility of others' souls. Back to chapter 5 in 1 Timothy, verse 19. And having approached this the way we have up to this point. Now I think you can understand with greater fullness what Paul's point is in this section. 1 Timothy 5.19 Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see, this isn't simply a protection against the man in the position of pastor or elder or overseer. It's not simply protection for him. It's protection for the flock. Well, Why do I say that? Because up to this point, Paul has done a tremendous job of explaining what it means to be above reproach. So the person who's put into the position of overseer is done so by men who have proven to be overseers. They've proven to be above reproach. So assuming that that is true in any given church, then that church must be willing to acknowledge that those men who are above reproach are keeping each other above reproach and those who look on and they think they have some accusation to make must be certain that it's an accurate accusation. Why? Because otherwise the church might just be full of constant inadequate and unnecessary accusations. Wrongful accusations. So if the church is truly doing its job, starting with the leadership, and the men who are in leadership are in fact above reproach, that an accusation against one ought to be received with great seriousness. And it needs to be done with two or three witnesses. And as I told you a few weeks ago when we went through Matthew 18, you are welcome to confront me individually anytime. Not just welcome, but I long for it. Now how, how, how is that? How can I say that? Doesn't that defy what Paul is saying here with regard to two or three witnesses, I'm a brother. I'm not just a servant leader. I'm your brother in Christ. If you love me, you will be concerned about my spiritual sanctification as well. And if you see something that causes you concern, then you should be willing to address it with me privately if you believe that's what the Lord would have you do. But the context with regard to an accusation brought against an elder is a corporate context. So the person who is either publicly or by way of going to one person and then another and then another and then another, making accusations about an elder is completely out of line. But the one who goes privately, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's right, and I personally long for it. And the day I stop longing for it is the day that I'm not qualified. Continuing in chapter 5 with verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, he's talking about a leader here, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. A person in the position of elder sins before the people. There needs to be a public address of that. You say, well, that would be awkward. It might keep your soul out of hell. You read it again. 
As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. If there's no fear in the hearts of the leadership with regard to sin against God and the people, there certainly won't be fear in the hearts and the lives of people in the pew. Verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Why does he add that little phrase? Because too often it's us for no more, shut the door in leadership, and you're our bud, you know, and I know, you know, you did some wrong, but we love you, man. We're on the same team, so let's just kind of let this slide, not address it. We'll show some partiality because, you know, you really sold your soul for the team. What does that communicate to the people? As long as you're one of the club, you'll never be out of the club, no matter what you do, no matter what the condition of your life. You see, when the righteous triumph, there's great glory, but when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. And ultimately, they will want nothing to do with the leadership of a church when the leadership is corrupt. You say, but I, what about all these mega churches? These churches get so big and it doesn't take long to see that there's corruption in the leadership. There's a revolving door in those places. Now listen, I did not say that there is a revolving door in every megachurch. I don't believe that. I don't think it's God's design that every church have the exact same number of people. And if a church has 20 or 30 or 100,000 people, praise God as long as the leadership is not corrupt. When the leadership is corrupt, whether there's 20 people in the church or 100,000, ultimately the people will, will hide themselves because the leadership has proven corrupt. Paul goes on here in 1 Timothy 5, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. Be sensitive to what could be ultimately the hardening of your own heart. Richard Baxter, again in the Reformed Pastor, says, Men would sooner believe that the gospel is from heaven if they saw more such effects of it upon the hearts and lives of those who profess it. The world is better able to read the nature of religion in a man's life than in the Bible. But too often men in church leadership have no business being in church leadership. In fact, they have no business talking to anybody about the Lord. Verse 13 in Proverbs 28. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Proverbs 15.22 says, The iniquities of the wicked will ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. I've illustrated this many times in the past with the same illustration, but I'm going to use it again because it's been so helpful for me. When I was a boy growing up in southwest Missouri, I spent a lot of time in a canoe. And one time as a buddy of mine and I were approaching a bobbing tree that had fallen into the creek, into Center Creek, there was a green line tied around that log, that tree, and many of you know that that was a trot line. And as we approached, we thought, wow, this must be, you know, maybe the largest catfish we will ever see. As we pulled it up, it was actually a very large snapping turtle. Somehow or another, that snapping turtle had gotten entangled in a very long trot line, completely unable to free himself. And so we had the privilege of unraveling this snapping turtle. Fortunately, none of us lost any fingers in the process. And as we did, we then freed the snapping turtle to swim away. But in the same way that that turtle was unable to free himself, the person who becomes entangled in his own sin cannot free himself at a certain point. There comes a time where he is entangled, he is ensnared by the cords of his own sin, and he does not any longer see it for what it is. And he doesn't care to, as far as we know. But he's, when, he, when he's been freed, he could look back and say, Wow! Wow! The condition I was in. Praise God for the person who looked me in the eye and said, I don't think you're a Christian. Praise God for the man who sat down with me and said, your sin is oozing from you and you don't even see it. Yeah, but look at the good things I've done. 
So you use that to cover it? Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked man flees though no one pursues. The righteous are bold as a lion, but the paranoid man flees. He's constantly thinking about what other people are thinking because he knows he has a guilty conscience. He hasn't confessed his sin. He's concealing his sin. So he's, he's mostly concerned about ensuring that other people are thinking what he wants them to think rather than his own soul. He's covering his tracks, looking over his shoulder. He's running. No one's chasing, but he's running. He's convinced they're chasing, even though they're not. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper for a number of reasons. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account to. God's eyes go to and fro. There's nothing he doesn't see. See, this is the real issue. The one who attempts to conceal his sin, he hides it relatively well in certain contexts. In some contexts, he doesn't hide it very well. Certainly his his family can see it, but even they, probably out of fear, don't really want to address it. They've seen how his willingness to attack others and defame others and slander others and gossip others who have attempted to help him see his sin. The family looks on and they see how that has been handled and they don't want to be subject to that. So they cower and they hide. Second Samuel 12 verse 12 Nathan says to David, after David's been exposed, for you did it secretly. But the Lord, the Lord says, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. You see, ultimately a man's sin will be exposed. And he ought to be thinking about this. He ought to recognize the reality that he is no exception. He might feel like an exception. He might think that he is an exception for a time. And temporarily, yes, the Lord does not always expose the fullness of man's sin, but ultimately he will. And so the Lord says to David, what you did in secretly, I will expose before all mankind. It ought to be a good motive for man to confess his sin. The proverb goes on, verse 13 goes on, it says, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Who wouldn't want mercy? Well, everybody wants mercy. But too often... People want mercy on their own terms. They don't want the pathway to mercy. They just want the mercy. Remember, based on this passage, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Remember it this way. What you cover, God will uncover. But what you uncover... God will cover. This should be helpful. This couplet, this proverb that really speaks of two truisms should be remembered that way. What you attempt to hide, God will expose. If you expose it, God will ultimately hide it. 1 John 1 verse 8 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I'll never forget years ago having a lengthy discussion with a young man in the context of a, a group of several young men. This man said to me, I, 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 I've never sinned. I said, I th- I'm so sorry. I thought for sure you just said you've never sinned. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I got saved when I was five. I've never done anything wrong since then. I said, so the, you know, the, the multitude of passages that tell us of the depravity of man... And I've recited several, Psalm 51, 5, um, Psalm 58, 3, um, Jeremiah 17, 9, Genesis 6, 5, Romans 3, 10. So those are not true about you. Oh, no, no, I'm a sinner. I've just never sinned. I said, man, I don't speak your language. I don't get that. I do not understand that at all. You've got to help me here. Well, I mean, we're all sinners. The Bible says so. Oh, but you've, you've never acted on that condition. Right. Wow. Now you and I can look back on that experience and I, I include myself when I say that and think that's whacked. And I say you and I are just as whacked. You and I are every bit as guilty. In the moment when someone approaches us with our sin and we say, well, I'm a sinner, but I didn't commit that sin. 
you and I do exactly the same thing. Too easy to fall into that trap, to follow that path. First John goes on to say in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There has to be a confession. There's got to be a speaking forth of what one has done. There's got to be a willful acknowledgement of it with your tongue. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. And many times this takes place by default. Well, nobody asked me if I committed that sin, so I never said anything. But you're a liar if you're not telling people. And you should be concerned about your soul if that's the condition that you found yourself in. He who confesses and forsakes his sins will find mercy. The one who clings to it, he hides it because he, he's proven himself in his own mind to have been effective at hiding it. So he's convinced that he can continue to hide it. In James 5, I don't want to read the whole passage, but let me just tell you, James 5, that section that tells us that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, that's about sickness because of sin. It's not a general passage about prayer. Why would, why would someone in the church go to the elders for prayer to be anointed? Because of sin in their lives that's led to sickness. That's the context. That's the only issue in that passage. Too often that passage is used for all kinds of things. I'll just read you the last verse of the passage. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know how it starts. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So, so those are the bookends of the passage and the context never changes. He never redirects his path. Too often we turn to that passage and say, well, we need to pray. Well, what does James call us to? To confess our sins one to another. That's the command in the passage. Confess your sins one to another. Say them. Say them out loud. In the proper context, of course. Right? You don't want to be the person who, who broadcasts all of his sins to the whole world. That's not helpful for you or anybody else. Really in the context of discipleship, I think that's the best way to think of that. That's why we, one of the reasons we put so much emphasis on discipleship that there would be those in your life that you could confess your sin to. They could help you with it. They could help you grow. They could help you have victory over that sin. Psalm 51 really is a psalm of repentance. The psalm of repentance. David says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Same term in Proverbs 28, 13. He who confesses and forsakes his sin will obtain mercy. So this is what David wants. It's what you should want. We should want mercy. There's nothing wrong with crying out for mercy. Nothing wrong for asking for God to withhold from us what we deserve. That's not a wrong thing to do. But the wrong thing to do is to be double-minded about it. To continue in one's sin. To continue to presumptuously commit sin. To commit it believing, well, you know, God is, you know, God has forgiven me, so I'm going to go ahead and commit that sin because he has forgiven me. And I believe that in Romans 3 and in Romans 5, Paul communicates with great clarity that that person is not a Christian. There's no way around it. He is yet condemned, Paul says. The person who's condemned is not a Christian. So the person who continues in his sin but says God will forgive me is proving that he does not have faith in Christ. He's got some lip service perhaps. But his faithfulness to the Lord is, is waning at best and maybe non-existent. David, on the other hand, says, Have mercy on me, O God. Listen to this. Not according to my works. He doesn't say, Have mercy on me, O God, based on, upon the, the good things that I've done. He doesn't even say, Have mercy on me based upon my confession. He says, Have mercy upon me based upon your steadfast love. Because I can't earn it. I can't gain it. That's why it's mercy. Mercy can't be earned. It's given to those who don't deserve it. Blot out my transgressions. He doesn't say, he doesn't say go back in time and make it so that they don't exist. Erase them. A blotting is a covering. 
your sins will always have existed. There will never be a point in time when your sins cease to have ever existed. Historically speaking, your sins will never go away. But in the atonement of Christ's work on the cross, what he accomplished was that you would be treated as if you never committed them. That's atonement. They've been covered. Your sins have been covered. That's what you want. You know this idea of forgiving and forgetting. You've heard that. You know, learn to forgive and forget. The Bible doesn't call you to do that, and it doesn't say that God has done that. It says he will not remember your sins against you, but he never says forgive and forget. He never says that he forgave and forgot. God can't forget. You know that. He's omniscient. There's no forgetting, but there is treating you as if he has forgotten. That's the idea. Now think of it. If you, in fact, have really forgotten something, there's nothing to forgive. When someone is committed to sin against you, and more specifically, more importantly for this context, for this passage, when you've committed sin against God, God doesn't say, I'm going to forget that sin. He says, I'm remembering it not against you. We ought to have that same mercy on others. But as you know, in this passage, in Psalm 51, having said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He now says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. May there be a separation between me and my sin. May it be that they would be as far from me as the east is from the west. Thank you, Lord, that you will do that. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Do you ever thank God that he is just when he judges? God, thank you that you love me enough to discipline me. You love me enough. You love the church enough to expose my sin so that the church would have the ability to deal with it rightly. But God, thank you that when you judge, your judgments are perfect. They're righteous. They're flawless. When you have that mindset. You can, you can say this, as David says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You see, this, this is where this has to be dealt with. There has to be an honest willingness in the depths of one's soul to be scathed by the Word of God. The truth would be drawn out like a salve draws out the poison in an open wound. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God breaks our bones metaphorically. You know the misery of unrepentant sin. You walk in that sin, but listen, you think you've got other people convinced, but you yourself know something is not right because you're depressed. You're discouraged. You don't have real joy. You have fleeting joy that comes with your favorite ice cream or coffee or whatever might make you happy in the morning. You know, they call it comfort food these days. But there's no real joy. There's no lasting joy because there's corruption in the heart. It hasn't been cleansed. David goes on in verse 9 and says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's much more here in this psalm. I recommend you read it. Apply it to your life. See, the one who will receive mercy is the one who confesses and forsakes his sin. He not only confesses it. David is confessing his sin, but he's also forsaking it. He does not simply give some form of lip service. You know, a casual, tight-lipped expression of, yeah, yeah, I, I, I did that. Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. That's what you expect from your children. Did you, um, did you hit your brother? What? Did, did you hit your brother? What? You did hit your brother, right? Mm-hmm. Not, no, see, that, those are children, right, that do that. We kind of expect that all. We hope they grow out of it. Lest they become like you and me. Did, did you commit this sin? I did. And let me tell you about it. Let me tell you in full that you can give me your best counsel. 
that you can give me your best love. Too many people are so good at spinning their own sin, whitewashing it, making it other than what it is. Don't be that person. Confession alone is powerless to bring God's mercy, especially a tight-lipped, unclear confession. It must be accompanied with a holy hatred for one's own sin. And time always reveals whether or not this has actually happened. Time always reveals whether or not this has actually happened. I remember years ago when a man I respected was exposed for having committed adultery and the pastor who was involved in his life kind of helping him through this said that he he came to him and he said, I just want you to know I'm repentant. And this pastor said to him, I don't know that and neither do you. I don't know that. What do you mean you want me to believe you're repentant? I can't know that. I can't see in your heart. Well, I know it. No, you don't. Time will tell. You, you can't really know what's motivating your sadness in the, the first 24 hours, the first week, the first six months perhaps. But time will tell. Time will tell whether or not a man is truly repentant, whether or not he's really confessing and actually forsaking the sin. He might be forsaking it out of fear of consequences. He's been caught. He's been exposed. He doesn't like the consequences. Does, it, does he hate the sin? Does he have a holy hatred for it? This is what it looks like in the New Testament with unbelievable clarity and comprehension. Listen to this from Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief, okay, godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow, Paul has addressed that in this passage, sorrow that's honest sorrow, godly sorrow, Christ-magnifying sorrow, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now that doesn't mean that you look back on your life and say, you know what I did, you know, it's in the past, let's just forget it, move on, act like it never happened. The lack of regret is in the fact that salvation has come and that's, in a sense, making it worth it whatever difficulties one has experienced. So there's no regret in the moment. He says, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief that is almost exclusively, maybe even exclusively, concerned just with the consequences of the moment. He's not really concerned about his soul. He's not concerned about anybody else's soul. He's not concerned about eternity. He's concerned about what people think about him right now. That's ungodly sorrow, and it leads to death. Paul says godly grief, godly sorrow, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And the church should be thankful for this. You know, we as a church, when someone's sin has been exposed, and it happens, it has happened, it does happen, it happens regularly, it should. The church should see this as an immense blessing to undergird and strengthen others who are willing to confess and forsake it. But the person who clings tightly to it, we still love that person. But we want that person to confess it and forsake it. Why? Well, because we can And Paul reveals the heart of man with this formula. Verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. There's an earnestness. Convincing willingness. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. There's an eagerness to have a clean life. It's a willingness to engage in the practices through discipleship and perhaps counseling that would lead to a clean and effective and productive life. What indignation. It's a strong word for hatred. There's an indignation for one's self. Oh, you can't love others till you love yourself. Lots of luck finding that in the Holy Word of God. It's not there. In fact, in several passages, there is an assumption that man loves himself, but that's simply used to help him understand how he ought to love his wife and others. No. Paul here refers to a term that has to do with self-hatred. There's a willingness to look at oneself and say, what I've done is horrible. It's awful. Look at the consequences in other people's lives. Look at the potential consequence on my own life eternally. And I'm still playing a game. I'm still doing everything I can to wax eloquent and convince people. I know some theology. I'll, I'll tell them what they need to know. You know, a question comes up in a group, I'll answer it. I'll provide some good knowledge, some good solid information, and I'll wow the crowd. 
Why not just be humble? Why not just be humble and be willing to have your own sin attacked so that you yourself would come to the place where you have a righteous indignation for your sin and even for yourself in the moment? Paul goes on here in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. And he says, what fear? What fear? Well, fear of God, of course. God, you know this, God deals with sin. He deals with it eternally. And the person who lives in unrepentant, the person who dies in his sins, goes to an eternity of torment. The person whose sin has been exposed is now, you know, the, the scab has kind of been ripped off the wound, at least momentarily. You hope another one doesn't grow back. Because you want that to be addressed. You want the pain to have its necessary effect. That's a little foretaste of God's eternal punishment for those who won't address their sin themselves. But the one who is repentant fears God. He goes on and says, what longing? What longing? There's a persistence. There's a time-tested pursuit. He longs into the future to be shown as being cleared. What zeal? It's real. It's genuine. It's passionate. This desire for true repentance. What punishment? What punishment? Yeah, there's a sense in which he does punish himself. You know, too many people will say, don't kick yourself. I say kick yourself. <laughs> At least for a little bit. You don't want to be the person who constantly kicks himself. Is that just pride? Look at me. I'm terrible. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the manner. Not previously innocent, but currently innocent. Not previously innocent. I mean, we're talking about someone who's been exposed for their sin. But in his repentance, he's currently innocent because he hates that sin and he lives a life to prove it out. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see the problem many times. The person who has not received mercy proves that he has not received mercy because he's really merciless. Just won't let anybody forget anything they've ever done. I've got a list at home. You know, i got a card file on every one of you. I've got a computer uh, program that keeps a list of everyone's sins. And don't you dare try to get out of it. I, had a, I told the guy one time, I said, you know, I, I'm really sorry that I offended your wife, really. I'm so sorry. And he couldn't tell me what I had done or what had happened. He just said, you know, you're just offensive to her. I said, I'm sorry. Maybe it's my hair color. I'm not sure. But whatever it is. I'm really, really sorry. Do you think she'll ever forgive me? And his comment was, well, she's still uh, holding stuff against me from the 80s. <laughs> Don't be that person. Verse 14. Verse 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. I love this verse. Listen to this. So practical, so helpful. Now listen, remember, these are truisms. Okay? Don't try to go home and plug this in, and tonight you're going to be better with the problem I'm going to talk about. Okay, some of you have trouble sleeping, right? And there may be significant reasons for that. Listen to this. Proverbs 29, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. He sleeps soundly. Now please hear me. I'm not saying if you're having trouble sleeping that it's a sin issue. But consider it. Consider the possibility that your fear of the Lord is inadequate and therefore you fear other things that keep you awake. Consider it. Proverbs 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. This is the guy, see, this is the guy that thinks he's got everybody fooled. Because in a sense, maybe he has. Years ago, I confronted a friend with some obvious sin, sexual related sin. And, and he said, you know, I don't really like this. You know, no one's ever done this before. I said, well, maybe nobody's ever loved you before. You see that? You see, many times the person who's skated through life with a, a, an incredible, almost, almost mysterious ability to avoid being confronted with his sin, he thinks he's wise. He's not wise. He's actually unwise. He doesn't long for the discipline of the Lord. He longs to escape a decreased reputation. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord. I suggest that the man who is entrapped in the cords of his sin doesn't think much about God. 
I don't think he thinks much about God at all. And I mean that however you think I mean that. In other words, I mean I don't think he thinks about God very often, but I also think that he doesn't think much of God in terms of God's character. And when he does, he squelches it. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness because he doesn't like what it does to his conscience. In the moment that God becomes important to him, now he's got to deal with the things that God says that he himself is rejecting and he doesn't like that. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Verse 8, Proverbs 3 says, It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You know this from Proverbs 31. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Nothing wrong with, with charm and beauty. But it's certainly, both are certainly very effective at bringing about deceit. You know, the person who uses charm and beauty to deceive others into thinking that there's no sin in his or her heart is not the person who will ultimately be praised because that person does not fear God. The person who fears God is far more concerned about God's discipline than he is about man's. He wants God's discipline through man's hand. The book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us God disciplines those he loves and the person who is loved by God has experienced that discipline and it was painful and he ultimately was grateful for it. I won't read the whole text to you from Acts 5, but I will tell you that Ananias and Sapphira are a tremendous expression of what many times, many times, happens in the home. One spouse begins to sin in a way that's it's unconscionable to both of them in the beginning of their marriage. They never dreamed, they never imagined they would engage in such sinful deception. But in an effort to keep peace in the home, one covered the other's sin by perhaps committing the same sin. Many times it's dishonesty. That's the context in Acts 5. That's, that's what the problem was. Ananias and Sapphira lied to God and to the church. And the result was a result that we don't know whether or not we see today. I, I say it probably still happens. But we can't look at a situation where a husband and a wife die and say, oh, that was a result of sin. You don't know that. Don't ever do that. But we do know that in this context, that's exactly what happened. God killed them. And listen, friends, God is no less serious about your sin with your spouse than he is Ananias and Sapphira's sins with his and her spouse. He is every bit as serious about your dishonesty with each other and with the flock such that the exact same consequences are ultimately coming, and that's torment eternally. Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity, the passage says. Ananias and Sapphira fell into calamity. They didn't expect that. You know, Sapphira shows up at home three hours after her husband's been executed and taken out and buried. Hey, honey, I'm home. Did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Oh, I'd never do that. No, no, I'd never do that. Well, how much did you sell the property for that you said you sold for this much? You said you sold it for A. Did you sell it for A or did you sell it for B? Oh, I sold it for A. And she died. And this is the seriousness of sin. Calamity comes upon those who harbor their own sin. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10 Nathan has these words for David. He says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. See, there are consequences. The sword shall never depart from your house. And if you know anything about Davidic chronological history, you know that it, it didn't. People continued to die in David's home and in his lineage. Why? Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. So, now, you remember, Nathan confronts David, and, and David, when he realizes what's going on, he confesses it. And there's a good consequence to that. There's a good result. Verse 14 says, uh, sorry, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's his immediate response. He immediately engages in what appears to be repentance and forsaking of his sin, and time proves that to have been true. About David. 
The passage goes on and says, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And the child died. There was a time where David thought the child wouldn't die, perhaps. He fasted, hoping the child wouldn't die. The child died. Nathan, Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you won't die. The child's going to die. While you remain in your sin, unwilling to confess it, you do these three things and maybe more. If you're, writing, if you're taking notes, I think you ought to write these things down. While you remain in your sin, unwilling to confess it, you, number one, temporarily prevent the unity of the church and steal her joy. Your sin, think of it, does not just affect you. Your sin is not just about you. It is about you. It's about selfishness. It's about pride. But you, in your sin, and I, in my sin, when we harbor our sin, when we choose not to confess it, we choose not to forsake it, we steal the joy of the church and the unity of the church. It means nothing. It means nothing. For the person who never thinks about the unity of the church, who never stops to think about his or her sin, thinking about the church and what it does to the church, there's a strong possibility that that person is not a member of the church. That person's not a Christian. Because he thinks nothing of the unity that he or she is destroying in the moment. Number two, while you remain in your sin, unwilling to confess it, you, number two, prevent your own joy, fellowship, and discipleship. Why are those who have no interest in discipleship? It is because of sin. There's no interest in being around believers. There's no interest in, in being taught, in being corrected, and being strengthened. You destroy your own fellowship. When you cling to your sin, it keeps you from solid, vibrant, honest, confessional relationships. And so you're an island. Don't be that person about whom people say, you know, who are her friends? Who does she minister to? Who is ministering to her? I never see that person interacting with Christians. Don't be that person. How can you avoid being that person? Confess your sin. Number three. Number three, and this will really hit home for many of you if the previous two haven't hit home. I want you to hear me when I tell you this. This is very important. When you cling to your sin and refuse to confess it and forsake it, you destroy your family. You might not feel it for years, but you know enough people who have been involved in the church on what seems to be a faithful activity basis whose lives have gone astray their relationships with their adult children are strained at best in many cases not even existent and what do they do? they point the finger at God's sovereignty well God is sovereign I don't know what happened there you happened there you happened there you were involved in your kid's parenting. And all too often, friends, we are not willing to take responsibility for our own inadequacies and weakness and sin and how we affect our children and our spouses. We must. You must help me with that. I must help you with that. I have four little boys. Oh, I so desperately hope they grow to love Christ. But let me assure you right now that they do not love Christ. For those of you who don't know, my oldest is eight, seven, five, and two. The two-year-old really doesn't love anybody but himself. But we don't want that to remain. I don't want to be the pastor who, whose life is untouchable because he's the pastor. And he insists that I've got these two people who will confront me. Uh, I'm good. i got two Nathans in my life. That's all I need. Can you all please be Nathans with me? Please? No, I mean that. For the sake of my voice, don't destroy your family in your love of sin and your unwillingness to repent and forsake it. Some of you have grown children and you think is their hope. Not if you think your children are the problem. No, there's no hope. Not in that case. But if you will repent, 
if you will confess and forsake your sin. And I mean long term. The strong likelihood that God will provide what's necessary for that relationship to be restored. Wouldn't that be great? Wow, look at the change in that family. Wow, the Lord did something. Wow. And then a few things. I'll finish with this. What shall I do? Now what do I do? Number one, fear God. Fear God. Understand what that means. Grow to understand that what means. Believe what He says about Himself. All of it. Not just the part about love. It's not true that all you need is love. You need discipline as do I. Number two, thank God that His discipline is just and loving. Thank God that His discipline is just and loving. It's never over angry. It's never sinful. It's never unjust. Number three, call your lack of confession selfishness. Call your unwillingness to confess your sin selfishness. Number four, uncover what you've covered. Stop covering it and start uncovering it. Confess your sin to those you've sinned against. You say, but David said he only sinned against the Lord. David wasn't giving you a doctrine of confession. He was saying that ultimately sin is only against the Lord. But you know and I know that we sin against each other. We see that in the scripture. We see that in our own lives. Confess your sin to those you've sinned against. Number five. Receive confrontation with gratitude. Be thankful that someone loves you enough to address your life. Receive confrontation with gratitude. Consider an act of bravery, love, and kindness when someone is willing to address your sin. Make it a joy for others to approach you. Don't make it, it's already awkward. Don't make it more awkward. Don't be defensive. Don't pretend that it's not true. Ask for more information. Please tell me more about what you've seen in me. Tell me more. Number six, follow up with a clear and convincing willingness to be restored to your brother in the church. Follow up. Don't, don't make people wonder whether or not you heard their, their confrontation, whether it matters to you. Follow up with a clear and convincing willingness to be restored to your brother and to the church. 